this is the Stand Alone Podcast. There's so many different stories and different experiences that people have gone through to get to this point where they're not speaking to a single family member or any family member. Sometimes it is really, really quite difficult to read as well to see what some people have had to endure and experience for so long. Ultimately, a lot of these people who are sharing their experiences, they tend to be at a point where they're, they're just so content in the decision they made and that's always amazing to see. My name's Jay and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. I'm still quite a religious person. If I felt that Islam had betrayed me in any way, I wouldn't follow this religion. I know that my view of God is someone who loves me unconditionally. There's obviously differences there in how my family have chosen to interpret the religion and I much prefer my version. (laughs) Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. There was no compassion anywhere throughout the whole experience. There was literally not a single person in my family who came to me and said, I can see how what you're going through is really isolating. It's really taking a toll on your mental health. And the shame came from really just what's attached with being from quite a religious family, a culture that expects so much of you. It is a very patriarchal culture and that's what rules the way people interpret the religion, unfortunately. No two experiences of estrangement are the same. But hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away, whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. I think when you're in the process of making a decision as huge as family estrangement and going no contact, it can feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, really. But I can safely say after two years of this experience, coming on to three years soon, I really wouldn't look back. I've learned so much about myself as well and who I am and reshaped my identity. And that is quite a fun process. (laughs) So I know it's not a decision you take lightly. You need time to think about it, completely respect that. But there is help out there as well to kind of guide you along the way. So in terms of the questions, I'm guessing it's just what you'd sent over via email previously just made like a couple of notes here my story in general how I came to find standalone responses I've received from speaking to other people about my experience and then advice great and thank you very much that that list of questions that's the kind of thing that I've sent to to everybody but of course naturally it's going to be shaped around your own story yeah no no I'd rather just get all of that cleared up before we start so that's fine My name's Aisha, I'm 28. I've been estranged from my family for the past two years. It'll be coming up to three years next year. And yeah, it's been quite a long, painful at times process and experience. But yeah, hopefully I can talk about it today and help others who might be going through the same and just share my experiences of it. How did it start for you? I tend to go back when I talk about my experience to the kind of defining moment when I decided to cut off the contact with my family and they also decided to do the same with me. But 
it's important to kind of acknowledge that there was so many different examples along the way in growing up that brought me to that decision and that final moment. But that moment was defined by basically a massive argument that I'd had with my family. They're quite religious and they are quite cultural as well. And when I say cultural, I mean that their view of the world doesn't necessarily fit in with Western ideals. But obviously, I've been born and bred here. And I guess that's where the clash comes into play. I met my partner three or four years ago, and he's not from the same religion and not the same culture. And that's really where the clash came in. My family weren't happy with the fact that I'd chosen a partner for myself, that I'd chosen someone who isn't part of our culture, who doesn't follow the same religion. And there was absolutely no willingness to compromise on their part. Initially, my partner was looking to actually convert to my family's religion. I think initially he was quite interested in learning about it. He'd always taken an interest in it, which is how we kind of became so close. But then I think after the experiences we went through and the way that my family responded to me being with him and actually meeting him, it really did put him off almost. They didn't pay the best picture of the religion and their culture and like I said there was no acceptance or willingness to compromise and and find a middle ground which I always kind of envisaged working um but obviously when it became a reality and they knew about him and they knew that I was in this relationship it became very clear quite early on that there wouldn't really be a way that I could stay with my partner and still have my family So it was quite early on of them finding out that it became clear that I had to make a decision and it was choosing between them or choosing him. And they were the ones to kind of articulate that to me and create that condition almost. It's not something that I ever imagined happening. In my head, I'd kind of always thought that maybe my family could understand and would be willing to find a way for this to work. But It was quite sad to see that as soon as he found out about my partner, it was a case of, well, it's him or us. And when I say my family, it's important to know I don't just mean my mum and dad. I mean my brothers, their wives, my aunties, my uncles, my cousins. So when I talk about estrangement from my perspective, I, I am literally cut off from everyone in terms of family. And I have no connection to anyone anymore. So yeah, it's been quite a painful experience. But what it has done is since the estrangement started, I've been able to look back and reflect at different examples throughout my life where I've thought about it in more detail and thought, actually, that wasn't right. You know, that shouldn't have happened to me. Arguments that I've had with my mum, the way that I've been treated in comparison to how my siblings have been treated, countless examples of where I've felt real neglect and abuse to some extent as well and you say that they they gave you that ultimatum yeah but you also say that they they set up the conditions for that yeah that that was it essentially so there was really no middle ground which I think I said previously there was no way to compromise there was no welcoming my partner and trying to maintain a relationship with me and find a way to make all of this work so everyone was happy. I was more than willing to do that. We both were, actually. 
But for them, it was a case of, well, break up with him and we can maintain this relationship and you'll have your family or you stay with him and you say goodbye to everyone. And as time went on, it became clearer what I needed to do because there was no compassion anywhere throughout the whole experience. There was literally not a single person in my family who came to me and said, I can see how what you're going through is really isolating, how, you know, it's really taking a toll on your mental health, how you must feel really cut out and almost betrayed as well to an extent by your family in this scenario. So let me be there for you. And the only person who I could really turn to in that situation was my partner. So it kind of made me reflect and think about, well, you know, who really does value me and who who does want to make sure that I'm happy and that I'm able to just carry on every day. I didn't really get any of that kind of support from anyone in my family. There was quite a few incidents where I was visiting home quite a lot throughout the whole ordeal. And every time I was going back, it would result in, you know, a screaming match between my mum and my siblings and me or my dad. My dad actually stopped speaking to me quite early on. He found out about my partner. He met my partner. And then after that, it was probably the third time I'd seen him after he found out about my relationship that he basically stood in the doorway of our house in front of my siblings and their partners and my mum and my my niece as well, who was only one or two years old at the time, and basically said, you know, it's him or us. You, you've clearly made your decision. You've picked him. So, you know, I'm never going to speak to you again. And that was the last time we spoke to each other, which was over two years ago. So it was quite a dramatic experience. And it was very, very isolating. I had nobody to turn to apart from my partner. But the thing I was wary of was that he was also going through the, same, the the experience with me. At times it felt like I couldn't really talk to him about what was going on because I didn't want to add more of a burden to what he was dealing with as well. And that's ultimately when I started, well, I turned to, to therapy as well because I found that counselling really did give me that outlet that I needed and that neutral ground to kind of just share my experience and not get advice, but just help guide me in the direction of what I needed to do to to kind of deal with what I was going through. You said that your partner was going through the same experience on their side as well. They weren't necessarily going through anything to do with estrangement or any issues with their family but I think the whole experience overall it took quite a toll on the two of us. My family were ringing him at points and basically harassing him and saying that he should convert to the religion and and that's the only way that our relationship could work and he was basically being pressurized by my family that was enough for him to be dealing with so at times it almost felt like me kind of piling on what I was going through with the issues of my family would just add more of a burden. Your partner said that he would have been well he'd been considering converting religion. Yeah that's right I'd basically always been brought up with this view that whoever I marry and have a future with one day would need to be of the same religion. It's quite common in South Asian cultures for 
there to be this demand really it's of men and women it's equal but I know a lot more women who have dealt with being ostracized by their families as a result of not following those conditions and not necessarily marrying someone of the same religion or from the same culture so you're almost brought up with this view of exactly what you need to find in a partner and there's a lot of criteria there that you've got for yourself anyway someone with the same interests and you know the basic things that we all look for in the ideal partner but then you're also met with this precondition of them also needing to follow the same religion or be from the same culture and in the society we live in today and living and growing up in the west especially you're not necessarily going to meet someone who meets those two criteria they might be the perfect partner for you but just because they're not from the same religion or the same culture you automatically assume that you won't be able to have a future with them or that if you do it's going to be a very difficult one Throughout this podcast, I've been looking to find connections between our guests, whether that's similarities or differences or common threads between people's journeys. Yasmin, whose episode is still to come, and Natasha, who was featured in one of the first episodes of the season, also talk about prevalent attitudes surrounding the female Muslim perspective, and you'll hear them interwoven occasionally throughout the rest of the episode. But the next voice you'll hear is Rebecca Bland. The founder, the founder and CEO of Standalone UK, who talks generally here about the issues of a rigid belief system. The more rigid the belief system in a culture, and that can be through any religion at all, the less likely it is that family relationships are going to be able to survive through conflict and difficulty. So, for example, on the front page of Standalone's website, we have a video with a guy who was rejected for being Jewish, but not wanting to be a Hasidic Jew. And he felt that his parents chose God over him. And I think that the more rigid that your beliefs become and the less flexible you are and unable to understand people's basic humanity within those either cultural or religious models, then the less likely it is that relationships or family relationships are going to be able to survive the conflicts, the changes and the difficulties that invariably are going to come up. And I think it's really important to note that it's not about scapegoating one particular religion or one particular culture. These are personal interpretations Mm. of those cultures and religions. Yeah, and individual as well, because the experience is going to be so different for, for different people regardless of what background they're from or what family they're from even. Yeah, and this happens across cultures which are intertwined with strong religious beliefs. So we work with a lot of people who are Jehovah's Witnesses who have rejected the Jehovah's Witness path and they are then rejected and disowned by the culture. And it's just a very tight interpretation of Christianity and it's something that's very rigid. Unfortunately, we're not all born to adhere to the rigidity of some people's personal interpretations of certain religions and I think there can be a lot of insecurity in all families of all cultures about difference about bringing in somebody that's different that's often a very tricky time for families when a new family member arrives and if you compound that with some very rigid structural beliefs and expectations then it is going to be extremely hard I mean, I've been through periods in my life where I felt really resentful to God. I blamed Allah for 
everything that I'd been through. I blamed Allah for the patriarchy within my community that I had experienced, the fact that I had to deal with this unfair burden and people had hidden behind Islam to sort of keep me doing what they wanted me to do. There's so many layers, right? There's so, so, so many layers. Like there's this whole thing about me trying to figure out who I am and not really being able to do that because there have been expectations and assumptions. Certain industries, it's the color of my skin. If you ask other people, it's my gender. If you ask other people, it's my gender and my skin color. If you ask some people, it's the fact that I'm an only child. If you ask other people, it's my education. Like it's 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 really it's really hard because people have all these all these different classifications that I I don't. So when I met my partner, we talked about these things and he was very open to the idea of exploring the religion and learning about it. And he'd always been quite interested in it. And that's why we started our relationship. And I thought this is going to be perfect. And, you know, my family are going to love him. But in reality, even with them knowing that he'd be willing to convert and was looking into converting and researching the religion, it still just wasn't enough for them. They never admitted it, but I think ideally they would have wanted someone that they picked for me, basically, <laughs> which, as we all know, isn't uncommon in South Asian cultures to have an arranged marriage or have your parents find the partner for you. From friends and family that I've got who've been through that experience of having their parents help find them a suitable partner that's great and if that works for you that's perfect because ultimately you're just finding your route to happiness but there is still very much a stigma around people from our culture who who find their own partner and essentially fall in love (laughs) with the person they choose Mm, rather than having the choice given to you yeah yeah and that was two years ago that the the incident took place are you and your partner that you're both still together at the moment yeah so we're still together going strong yeah still going strong still happy yeah fantastic from the outside looking in one perspective people could have is that you made the right positive choice by sticking to what you believed in here. Definitely, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's definitely been moments where I've wondered whether I maybe made the right decision, not in terms of staying with my partner, but in times where I've maybe missed my family or it's a certain time of year or there are times where you do question yourself and I think that's perfectly normal because it's such a huge life-changing decision and a big shift in the way you you kind of see things so there have been times where I've questioned whether it's been right but one thing that has become clearer with time is that it has absolutely been the right decision for me there's been too many amazing things that have happened to me over the past two years to kind of look back and and regret anything. I'm really pleased to hear that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Are there any particular members of the family that you expected might have spoken out against and sided with you? So the situation I'm in, it's unfortunately quite a common one. It's quite common in South Asian cultures for men and women to pick a partner of their own choice that their family aren't necessarily happy with. But one thing that's become clear over time, it is more of a generational issue. So it is a lot more of the older generation who seem to have this issue 
and this fear almost of, of their children losing their culture or losing their faith. And one of the ways in which they could do that is by picking a partner who doesn't necessarily come from that same culture or follow that same religion. But I've got younger cousins and I've got siblings who aren't too much older than I am. And I really expected that through this whole ordeal, they would be there and, and they would support me they'd almost be fighting my corner really to kind of convince my my parents and my aunties and my uncles that I'm making the right decision for me. There's countless examples out there of men and women from my background who've picked their own partners and are perfectly happy and have found that compromise with their family as well. But unfortunately, I didn't get that support from from my siblings or my cousins. And, and that was that was probably one of the hardest aspects of, of this whole journey really. Is it a case for them that they would be putting themselves into a position if they were to side with you and defend you that they'd be putting themselves in a bad a bad place? Um, definitely so I think when it comes to my siblings <laughs> especially with them they're older than me but not much older and in these typical kind of scenarios where you see narcissistic parenting methods there's always the golden child and if you've experienced estrangement of any kind or any kind of unusual family dynamics you'll be aware of it and my my siblings are definitely the golden children of the family it's just me and two older brothers really that I've got no matter what they've done my parents have, have never had an issue with them in fact one of my brothers was in my exact situation quite a few years ago now but my parents in contrast were really welcoming to the partner he'd chosen who wasn't from our culture and wasn't from our religion it was quite interesting to see how the scenario played out for the two of us and it was so dramatically different and I think with that in mind and the way in which their relationships were with my parents they weren't willing to do anything that could be detrimental to that and could harm that I never really imagined they would support me. But with my cousins, I was quite surprised because they're younger than me and we kind of grew up as almost like siblings anyway because we were so close. So when I realised that I wasn't getting any kind of support from them, it was really quite heartbreaking. And yeah, I guess to some degree they were doing it to, to protect themselves maybe. But I know that if the tables were turned and they needed me to be there for them, there's no way that I would question it and and I would have been. Actually, you say your two brothers were the golden children. Yeah. Do you think gender has anything to do with that? Yeah, gender's got a huge role to play, especially in South Asian cultures. It, it's difficult to, to say it without kind of stigmatising my culture and my religion, but there is an issue of patriarchy and... There is an issue of men always feeling more advantaged than women are or women feeling disadvantaged in comparison to men, I would say. I do think that there is that issue there of gender. My brothers have always been trusted more than I was growing up. They were able to do a lot more than I was. To be fair to my parents, I, I was given a lot of freedom. But strangely enough, the older I got, I started to see some of those freedoms kind of stripped away. So, for example, after university, I wasn't really allowed to move anywhere. I had to move back to the family home and stay at home and live at home. And the idea was that I would live there 
until I was married and then I'd be able to move out. And this is a really, really common occurrence for South Asian girls. We aren't really free until we're married. That's that's the way that it's viewed. Whereas my brothers, they had quite a different experience. They were able to graduate and get jobs wherever they wanted. One of them lived abroad. They were able to live wherever they chose and work wherever they chose and basically be independent. And that wasn't something that I could benefit from, really. The most obvious cultural things for me as a girl growing up was the fact that, like, so on the surface, like, I couldn't play football. My main aim was to go to school, get a degree, and then get married. Like, there was no other, like, so I would have to be respectable, but my main aim was to get married and have children and to not be too argumentative. So a man would want to be with me. Indian culture is is very strange. You need to be pretty, but not too pretty. You need to be slim, but not skinny, and definitely not fat. You need to look like you work out, but you can't work out too much. And you need to be dainty, but not too dainty. And you need to be smart, but not intimidatingly smart. And you need to be successful, but not intimidatingly successful so i.e more successful than your potential husband and you also need to have a nice family and you need to be presentable and you need to do all those things like that that is that that was the expectation on me growing up when i look around the muslim community i mean there's just such a strong sense of family and it's very rare for me to meet other people in my situation and when i have met other muslim girls who have very similar toxic family situations to me, they tend to endure that situation, which I did for many, many years. And I can see how it impacts their mental health and their progression in life. I've met women in their 40s who are completely controlled by family. I've met people who are forced to marry a particular person because of what a toxic family member wants. I mean, this is why I, I was I was quite keen to get involved in this podcast, because I think it's really problematic within our community. There's a lot of spiritual abuse. There's a lot of emotional abuse that comes from family members and elders and Asian community who will put pressure on young people to do a particular thing. And they'll hide behind Islam to make sure that they do that because nobody wants to be seen as a bad person. Nobody wants to be seen as a bad Muslim. Everybody wants to try and do their best to, you know, be respectful of their parents. But that shouldn't mean that you lose your autonomy and, you know, forced to live in a particular way, which is against your will, or that is to the detriment of your mental health. Yeah, and there's a duty aspect there, isn't there? But ultimately, there's also the counter of human rights, is that everyone's got the right in Europe to choose their family life. That's a human right that's enshrined in law. And duty, cultural pressure and duty, don't trump human rights in this case. So I think that we all need to have the freedom to be able to remove ourselves from very, very abusive and difficult situations. The sense of duty in South Asian families is very, very strong and it's very hard to step outside of that system. It is a really strong cultural system that traps a lot of people in very abusive and difficult situations. And we work with so many young women, particularly from South Asian backgrounds, who have just for one reason or another felt that they can step out of that and have made very brave choices. But it can be very easy to be dragged back in. 
And there's a huge culture of shame that forced marriage campaigners such as Shaheen Hashmat and Karma Nirvana have been talking about now for a couple of decades. That's really important to realise is that honour, shame and the system that surrounds that means that young people can't often speak out about really, really difficult and horrific abusive experiences that they're going through. I'm quite conscious of not building a negative image of Islam or my culture, I guess. But I do feel like it needs to be acknowledged that this is quite a common issue for South Asian men and women, but predominantly women. I know a lot of women who've gone through the same experiences I have and have been cut off from their families as a result of a choice that they've made for themselves. Hopefully I'm not building a negative image of of the religion or the culture because people will understand that this isn't the case for everyone. The Muslim culture is very personal. You know, it's a personal interpretation again, isn't it, of your relationship to God and Islam. And if we end up judging entire races or entire religions on the actions of a few people who are interpreting these beliefs in a radical way or in a way that's very hurtful to other people that doesn't respect their human rights, then I think we become a very judgmental culture and is it an excuse to judge if we do that? Whilst I am saying Islam doesn't project this kind of treatment of of women, it really is the way that it's manipulated by leaders within the religion and, you know, people that that follow the religion and how they choose to manipulate certain texts or teachings. And and I think it's really important that that is portrayed in what I'm saying. I'm still quite a religious person. If I felt that Islam had betrayed me in any way, I wouldn't follow this religion. But I think it is very much about having the freedom to follow and practice it in a way that suits you. And not a lot of people have that freedom It's important that it's acknowledged that you need to be able to practice your faith in a way that suits you for you to practice it happily and not feel like you're being forced down a certain route or forced to kind of do what your parents say because that's what they believe is right. Yeah. And how do you personally find your relationship with with Allah and your faith in general? I think that it has been really tested over the past couple of years, especially because the whole situation I am in has come from people who are saying that Allah wouldn't agree with what I'm choosing to do. But I have been able to kind of research and read about my faith in my own freedom and with my own independence. And I know myself that I wouldn't want to believe in a God who would want me to feel ostracized like this from my family and feel alone. I know that my view of God is someone who loves me unconditionally and cares for me and cares for everyone. So there's obviously differences there in how my family have chosen to interpret the religion and the way that I choose to interpret it. And I much prefer my version. (laughs) If you've heard Blair's episode already, you'll know that Blair was using the goal of leaving to go to university as a method to get away from his traditionally religious family. Because I always knew that university was my only way out. There was no other way I could leave that town. When you're moving away from home and starting university and 
all that, everything changes and you've got no way to sort of prepare yourself for it. So I didn't have a concrete plan, I just knew things would be different. But after getting to university, I was just so busy with Freshers Week and courses and new friends. Because I was removed, I felt safe. There was no longer this pressing need to unveil everything that would be going on and confront everyone and start a big fuss. Because I was fine. Like, for the first time in four years, I felt safe, and so I didn't want to immediately upset that. Like Blair's journey earlier in the podcast series, Aisha shared her experience of going to university and the benefits of getting away from home. University was amazing. The most liberating experience to kind of move away from home, build my independence, make new friends from all over the world. Yeah, it was probably the the key moment in my life where I really started to build that independence in who I was as an individual. You might remember Blair talking about how, over time, he tried to reduce the amount of visits he paid to his parents as much as he could. But contrastingly for Aisha, after experiencing this newfound sense of independence, Aisha returned from university for a while to live in her family home. Living at home after university, it was quite a, it felt like quite a culture shock. When I was at university, I was able to see my friends whenever I wanted, um, go out whenever I wanted, and you know I had a lot more freedom. But being back at home, at times it was really isolating. I was quite far from my friends, and it wasn't just as easy as nipping out whenever I wanted. I'm sure a lot of people experience it if you move back home after university. It's almost like there's someone there asking, where are you going or when will you be back? And, you know, all those kinds of questions which you're not used to answering. Yeah, because for the past three years, you've just been on your on your own time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was three years that I was at home for after university. And then I moved out. And then it was probably a year and a half after I'd moved out that this whole ordeal happened with my family. Oh, it's good then that you weren't living with your parents or your family at the time. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I wasn't living with my parents at the time. But that in itself was a battle. So having the permission, I should say, to be able to move away after university, it took three years to convince them that that was the right thing for them to let me do. My brothers had quite a big say in what I did. And and my brother's partners as well, who I'd known for about a year or so, were felt like they almost had a right to tell my parents how to parent me, essentially. And then I finally was able to move out. I got a job and I've been looking after myself since, really. I've not had any kind of financial support from them. I never really have as well. Since I was 16, I've always worked and paid my own way. Are you talking earlier about stigma? Have you had people say, why did you make that choice? I can't believe you moved away. Um, I've never had anyone say anything like that to my face. I know that family friends have had an opinion on me being able to move away and kind of regain that independence. I know that a lot of family friends didn't agree with my parents allowing me to move away. And I know that my parents were kind of hoping that if I did move away, I would never have met my own partner and done what I've done, basically. So, yeah, I guess there's a little bit in there where there are a lot of people who would disagree and wouldn't have supported my parents in allowing me to do what I've done. 
guilt and shame were the two biggest emotions I felt for a really long time and it's taken me a, a long time to process that and get to a point where I'm actually really proud of what I've done and I'm really proud to be where I am. The guilt really came from feeling like I've betrayed my family when times were really hard and you know I was struggling to kind of process how I felt about things it was easy to just blame myself and the shame came from really just what's attached with being from quite a religious family a culture that expects so much of you there was a lot of shame in that and kind of feeling like I'd done something wrong and done something that I shouldn't have done and I was almost facing the consequences for it. But in looking back two years now, having that distance and that time, how has that feeling, has that perspective changed? Definitely, definitely. I think finding communities online who have gone through the exact same experiences or similar experiences and come into terms with the fact that this is beneficial for a lot of people, but it's still stigmatised in society because there's not enough awareness. I do think that it was the best decision I could have made for myself. I'm a lot happier now. I feel a lot more independent, a lot more free. I don't have that negativity I had in my life when my family were there. I didn't realise how much of a negative influence they were on me, how when I used to spend time with them, how they used to make me feel about myself. It's taken a lot of time to sit back and actually think about all of that and reflect on it and think about how they used to leave me feeling when I used to spend time with them and how that feeling has disappeared now. And there's no one in my life anymore who makes me feel like that. And you can't put a price on that. From the perspective of offering advice to anyone who might be going through something similar or any form of difficult relationship with their family, on the brink of estrangement, considering estrangement, anything like that. I think it's really important to prioritise yourself. When you come from these kind of toxic family dynamics, you almost have been brought up and conditioned to believe that you're second best. I know that that was what my experience has been like. And I've never really put enough emphasis on the importance of looking after myself. If you're going through anything like this and you're at that point where you're trying to make a decision about what is right for you and what's going to benefit you. It really is important to think about yourself first and not worry about what this might do to your mum or your dad or your siblings or, from my case, also what the community might think or anything like that. Just do what's right for you and continue to think about yourself and the importance of your mental health, your physical well-being. When I was at the earlier stages of this ordeal, the toll that it took on my mental health and my physical health, I had clumps of my hair falling out. That's how much stress I was under without actually sitting back and realising how traumatic this whole experience can be for someone. Yeah, I just want to emphasise how important it is to get that therapy and get that counselling or do what whatever you think will benefit you ultimately and, and just prioritise that. And looking ahead, we'll be talking more in detail about therapy and counselling support in the next episode of the series where we meet David. You talked about forging a new identity and the process that that has been. Are there any new parts 
that you'd say are newly attached to your personality because of this experience? It's made me more of a feminist. <laughs> um, yes. I, <laughs> I think the experience I've been through has made me realise that I'm not alone and there's just too many women like myself who have had to go through horrible experiences, even worse than mine, have been at the receiving end of abuse of all kinds and it's purely because they're not valued as a woman and what I've realized is the importance of us standing up for ourselves and how much you can gain from doing that as well so yeah I think it's made me realize the power of being a woman and standing up for myself and how important that is it's helped me find my voice as well. Come from a family where I was always talked over or if I shared an opinion, it was immediately met with disagreement or I was laughed at. And I, it really did eat away at my confidence whilst I was growing up. This whole experience has made me realise that I have a voice, I have an opinion and there are people who want to hear it and want to listen to me. And that's amazing because it's something that I didn't really have growing up. Aisha, I'm so, so thrilled to hear that. Thank you. That's really lovely to hear and I've had a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you, you too as well. I think if I'd have had this opportunity two years ago when everything was still so fresh, I probably would have said no, just because I don't think I would have been quite ready to talk about my experience and offer anything at that point of value to someone else. But it's amazing how in two years or however long anyone else has been going through this when you get to a point where you're willing to share it with the public and to share your story with anyone else you really are at that point where you do feel liberated and you feel like you know that you've made the right decision and you're willing to offer help and support to someone else who might be going through the same hmm. yeah and I know that I mean it, it must be difficult if you hear someone say oh don't worry it'll get better hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, it's not the most comforting thing to hear, is it? <laughs> if you're right in the thick of it. But, you know, with time heals all and I stand by that. And from my experience, I know that time has helped just in terms of how I look back at what I've been through and how that helps me look forward as well. It definitely is one of those where you've just got to trust the process. Oh, and one final thing. I just wanted to end Aisha's story with a really strong, positive note looking forward. Me and my partner are currently in the process of buying a house. And that's an amazing achievement for me to be in this position where I've saved up enough on my own to kind of be able to put a deposit down on a house and do something as huge as this and so independently. That is a pretty defining experience for me. I saw the kind of financial support that my siblings had growing up. I've never really had the same or been offered the same. So I'm really looking forward to the day that we complete on a house, we get the keys and I can say I've done all of this on my own. Thank you so much indeed. Yeah, thanks. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Aye, the same to you. Love it to meet you. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye-bye-bye. Bye. Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. 
We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue. And it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Alone podcast. And a credit to Aisha, who, like everyone else on board this podcast series, has been so open about her experience of estrangement. It really is a credit to all of the people who've shared their stories and experiences as part of this podcast. And we are really thankful. If you have any thoughts about this podcast, anything that you'd like to hear, something that we should be tackling that we're not touching on, please do send us a message. We're very much open to feedback and want to make the podcast the best that it can be moving forward so that it's as useful for you as possible. The best way to do so would be to visit our Twitter. That's at StandAloneUK. Or follow the link in the description to find the Standalone UK website. On the next episode of the Standalone Podcast, we'll meet David. Until recently, David was estranged from all three of his children, following a divorce from his former partner. Now he's reconnected with his two daughters, but is still estranged from his son. I suppose how I approached looking to reconnect with the children, because I felt that I was changing the way I wanted to live my life, seeing the therapist and working through the therapy, I was determined that any relationship that I would have in the future, if I managed to reconnect to the children, would be an authentic relationship, that it wouldn't be a relationship based on a false narrative or based on rules imposed by the children's mother. If I was going to be able to reconnect with them, it had to be an honest open relationship with them. I'm sure it came across as uh, as defensive, perhaps, from my side. My children described some of my messages as passive-aggressive. Uh, but you're trying to defend yourself, really, against what you think is just completely unfair. You, you, you cannot understand how they can be so unreasonable and not even try. You know, that's what can be so hurtful. They appear not even to be trying to see your point of view.
If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.